0: There are times in Romans that we slow way, way down, and we cover uh, a smaller number of verses. And the reason we do that is there are such vital truths taught in bite-sized chunks that we need greater time to digest the truths that we are being taught. As we've been working our way through Romans 5, you have noticed, I'm sure, that we have slowed down as we have progressed through the chapter. And the reason we've slowed down is because Paul is working out the implications of justification by faith. And those implications are so key to our hope in Jesus Christ that we must think very, very deeply upon them. Now today, we come to some verses that show us why Christ alone and His grace alone is the only thing that is adequate for our need. Today, we are coming to the meaning of original sin. Verses 12 to 14 that introduce this uh, entire final section of Romans 5 has been described by Pastor Jim Boyce, who pastored for many years in Philadelphia before the Lord took him home, as a difficult section. In fact, he says about this section, possibly the most difficult in all of the Bible. What is taught in the portion that we will see here this morning is so important that Jonathan Edwards wrote an entire book on this subject. Uh, There are many who believe that Jonathan Edwards is the greatest pastor theologian that America has ever produced. And he wrote a book on original sin, and you can see how he described it, that great, important doctrine. And the reason Edwards wrote the book was even in his day, he thought Christians were losing a grasp upon this important truth from God's Word. And here's what he reasoned. If there's no radical problem that was caused by the fall of Adam, then there is no radical remedy that is needed by the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are not sinners corrupted by Adam's fall then we really do not need the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ as our only remedy. I had a friend who once said this. He said, I don't see how what Adam did thousands of years ago affects me today. Does it surprise you that this friend also has had a very hard time understanding how what Christ did 2,000 years ago affects us today? You see, both are intimately connected, and go hand in glove. Now, as we begin this section that stretches to the end of the chapter, verse 21, we see, first of all, the universal consequences of Adam's sin. And then, next Sunday, we will look at the power of Christ to cancel those consequences. This morning, I'd like us to read these verses together that we'll be looking at in unison. And so, would you join me as we read them together? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Let's take a moment and pray together. Lord God, we thank you so much that the Christian worldview is the only worldview that explains reality as we see it. And we see, Lord, that death is universal. Everyone anticipates a day when they will die, unless, of course, Jesus should come for His own. And then we see the universal problem of sin, No one claims to be perfect. We all know that we do wrong. And we have to go behind these truths and ask, why is this true? Why is this the universal reality? And we're so grateful that Your Word gives us the clear answer. And then thank You because of the great need we have. We have a great Savior who grows in wonder and our appreciation for Him the more we understand what He has done for us. Guide us now by Your Spirit that we might know the things freely given to us in Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. This morning, as we look at these verses, I want you to notice that there are essentially three questions that arise out of this text that will help us to understand the truth as it's taught to us here. First of all, what is this passage teaching us? Secondly, why is this the case? And then because this truth has been so hard for people to accept and believe, is there any proof that this is indeed reality? And so as you have your Bibles, open them with me to Romans chapter 5. And let's begin this morning with question number one. What is being taught in this passage? And here the answer to the question is very simple, as it's found in verse 12, that Adam's sin spread death to every one. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, Because all sinned. Now verses 12 to 14 are describing the universal reign of death over all humankind. And verse 12 tells us the reason for this universal reign of death is because of sin. Now the one man that it says sin came into the world through or death came into the world through is Adam. And Paul is clearly here referring to the warning that God gave to Adam in Genesis 2 verse 17. We all know it very well. God said to Adam, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will, and what's the last two words? surely die. Now what this is telling us is that death is not the natural end of life as so many believe today. Frequently when we go to funerals today, uh, we discover in those funerals that death is not even viewed as an enemy. Uh, So many people today want to celebrate life And all they want to do with death is somehow view it as an inconvenient fact that all of us must go through, but there are really no ramifications to it. Often today when a person dies, doctors will say or they will give a report of the cause of death, won't they? They'll say maybe it was cardiac arrest, or maybe it was a fatal disease, Sometimes they'll just say, the person died of old age. But the Bible is telling us here, those things are not the cause of death. They are the means of death. They're not the ultimate cause. Death, the Bible teaches us, is a separation of the soul from the body, and physical causes cannot account for that. So the Bible is very, very clear that death is a punishment for sin, and that death includes spiritual death, separation from God, physical death, the separation of the body and the soul, and ultimately eternal death, separation from God forever in a place the Bible calls the lake of fire. So death is a spiritual transaction caused by God, as a judgment on the sin of humanity. Now, the amazing thing here in verse 12 is it says, one sin introduced death into the world and ultimately to every single person. Uh, the word spread in verse 12 is a very important word. It has the idea of distribution. So the concept is this. Through one man, sin came into the world, and death through sin, and so death makes its way to every single individual member of the human race. That's its extent, and that's its distribution to everyone. Uh, Whenever somebody dies unexpectedly and particularly if they're a younger person. Ellen and I will often talk about this very fact. And we'll say to each other, you know, we think we're going to live. But the reality is, we're going to die, isn't it? That's the reality. And when somebody younger dies, we are surprised by that, because we all assume... I'm going to live, and the younger I am, the more that means, the greater the life that I have in front of us. But here's what the Bible really says. All of us begin life with death hanging over us. And we live our life under the sentence of that death. Spiritual death, physical death, and eternal death. That's what this passage is teaching us. Now let's move to the second question here. The second question is why? Why? And the reason this is true is verse 12 says that we sinned with Adam. We sinned with Adam. Notice at the end of the verse it says, because all sinned. I want you to pause here with me for just a moment. When Adam sinned, we sinned. You sinned. I sinned. Every single person who has ever lived sinned. When he ate the forbidden fruit, we ate the forbidden fruit right along with him. God charged every single one of us with Adam's sin. Now, I want you to notice that there are two things in this passage that stress this. Did you notice in verse 12, the word sinned is in the past tense? Did you notice that? It doesn't say all have sinned personally, but all sinned in a past moment in time. At a specific instance, we all sinned, and that sin was when Adam sinned. And then I want you to notice something else as we next week will look at verses 15 down to 21, that this one sin is emphasized in the following verses. Uh, Sometime this week, read those verses, and you will find these three phrases over and over again. One trespass, one sin... One, disobedience. You will find those three three phrases six times. Six times. So the sin referred to was Adam's sin. And God charged all of the human race with sinning with Adam when Adam sinned. Now, I can see somebody raising their hand a moment this morning and saying, Wait, wait a minute. Hold on. I wasn't there. I wasn't born yet. How could I be guilty of a sin that I was not present to commit? I can hear somebody else say, wait a minute, Pastor. Aren't we held responsible for our own sins, not the sin of someone else like Adam? What is going on in this passage? We must understand that the Bible teaches there is a solidarity between the whole human race. We are like one great big family, all descended from one man, Adam. In fact, if you were to look very carefully at the Old Testament in the original language, you would discover that the name Adam also means mankind. Now, I want to take you to a passage where we see this very, very clearly. Genesis 5, 1 and 2 And notice what this says, and I want you to notice in both places where you see the little square outline of a box, it is the very same Hebrew word, Adam. So let me follow as we read the text. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and He blessed them... And name them man in the day when they were created. And you'll notice the little footnote teaches us the truth here that the Hebrew word Adam is the word for an individual man that we know as Adam, but it is also the word for all mankind, all humankind. So, what is the Bible saying to us then? In the garden, Adam represented all of his descendants. He was what we call our federal head. All of us know that we live in a federal government. We elect representatives. They go to Washington, and there they represent us because they are our federal heads. Whatever decisions they make and are signed into law are binding upon us Because we are Americans who are represented by our senators and our elected officials. Now that's what's being taught here. When Adam chose to rebel against God in the garden, God chose to charge the whole human race with rebelling with Adam. Uh, Maybe there's a little illustration that I can use this morning that will help us to understand it. Uh, football season is less than two months away, and I now I now know that I have all your attention. And in a couple of months, uh, many of us are going to watch our favorite football team. And as we're watching our favorite football team, inevitably what's going to happen is when the offense comes up to the line of scrimmage and the quarterback begins calling the signals, there's going to be an offensive lineman who jumps before the snap is given. The yellow flag is going to go into the air, right? There's going to be a penalty. And here's what's going to happen as a result of that penalty. That single individual lineman is going to be required to go back five yards. Is that what is going to happen? Who's going to go back five yards? The whole team. Don't raise your hand if you're one of those people sitting there saying, that's not fair. That's not fair. Well, why is the whole team sent back five yards? Why are they penalized? Well, the reason is football is a team sport. There's a solidarity amongst a team. And one player can affect the whole game. In fact, one player can affect the whole season by one action. Bill Buckner just passed away, the baseball player. Many of you remember in the 1986 World Series, the Red Sox had it all wrapped up and a ball trickled between his legs and he muffed it and the entire team lost the World Series. See, the actions of one person on a team can affect the whole team. Now, the Bible is telling us it is the same with sin. Because one man, Adam, sinned, the whole human race was penalized. And if we object to this... Well, let me ask this question. How many of us think we would have done any different than Adam? Is there anybody who would raise their hand and say, Pastor, if I were there, I would have done differently. And then let me ask this question. How many of us do any different than Adam? Of course we don't. Our daily sins condemn us We know that, and so we understand God is just and fair in the actions He has taken. Now this morning, as we consider this very important passage, we are learning something very, very fundamental. We are learning that there are three types of sin, and I have them listed for us on the screen this morning. First of all, there's Adam's sin, and we are guilty of that sin, and under the sentence of death, because he was our representative. Secondly, we are uh, guilty of inherited sin. We are sinful from birth, inheriting a corrupt nature. And then finally, we commit personal sins. We sin personally by our own choices. How many of us think we have innate power to change this condition? Obviously, we don't. And since we are powerless to change this condition, we need a powerful Savior who can. Our fall in Adam necessitated that we would rise in one who was greater than Adam who would come to represent us. So I want you to say this morning, as we look at this, the first two of these are what we call original sin. Original sin is we are guilty of Adam's sin because it was charged to us, and then we have inherited a sin nature that we cannot change. Now some people, as I've said already, object to this. Blaise Pascal was a very famous philosopher. He was a Christian. But you know what he said about this idea of original sin? He said it's an offense to reason. It's an offense to reason that we should be born in this condition. And you might be here this morning and you might say, Pastor, I understand personal sin, but I have a real problem with the first two. Is this really what the Bible teaches? And Paul understands that we would have a question about this. And so in verses 13 and 14, he gives us the proof. And as we look at reality, we say, absolutely, this is reality. Let's look at the proof, all right? Number three. Question number three, is there proof? And here's the proof. All people died even before God gave the law. Look at verse 13. For sin, indeed, was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. I want you to follow this very carefully this morning. The point here is this. People were sinning before God gave the law, but their sin did not violate a clear set of commands. Sin, before the law of Moses, did not have the character of a transgression that was punishable by death. In fact, if you look at verse 14, you will notice that Paul switches from the word sin to the word transgression. And a transgression is the breaking of a specific law that has a penalty tied to it. So notice what verse 13 is teaching us. People were sinning before Moses came and gave the law. Their sin was indeed worthy of death. But God did not charge their sins with death because there was no law. They did not sin like Adam against a clearly given command with a penalty attached. And yet, what does verse 14 say? Look at it. Death still reigned from Adam to Moses over all who did not clearly violate a command as Adam had done. I'll ask you sometime, go back to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 is the first obituary in the Bible. And here are all the male descendants of Adam that are listed You know what you read over and over again? And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. Over and over again. Now, if people did not die due to their own sins before God revealed His law, why did they die? the only logical answer, they died because of Adam's sin. They did not die because of their own acts of sin. They died because they were held accountable for Adam's sin. Let me just stop for a moment. This is why infants die. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why do infants die? If death results from sin, then infants should not die, right? Because infants are incapable of making any kind of a moral choice, let alone a sinful choice. But infants do die, don't they? Do you know what the infant mortality rate in the United States is? It's six out of every thousand. So in the U.S. today, six out of every thousand infants that are born will die in infancy. The country with the highest infant mortality rate is Pakistan. In Pakistan, 46 out of every thousand infants that are born eventually will die in infancy. And one of the questions that every parent has is this. Why did my baby die? Why did my baby die? Why one and not the other? When I was in seminary, they said when you become a pastor you better have an answer for this. I've had three funerals for a child and two infants. The child was six years old. One infant died very soon after birth. The other infant was a twin. The brother of that twin was healthy and fine, but his brother was in an incubator, for a couple of weeks, in a hospital, and finally died. And when you stand at the front of a funeral home, and there's a tiny little body in a tiny little casket, and in the case of the twin, we drove out to the Ravana Cemetery, and I was not prepared for this, The father had the little coffin. It was just like a little styrofoam box in the back of his Suburban. And when we arrived, I was anticipating the funeral directors to take that coffin to the grave. But the father opened up the back door, got what looked to me like a little styrofoam box, and then took it over to the grave and placed it in the grave as we said our final words. It's heart-wrenching. It's heart-wrenching. And every parent wants to know, why did my baby die? And then what's the next question? Will I see my baby in heaven, right? That's the next question. And they told us in seminary, you'll be faced with this. And you need to have an answer. Now God has not revealed why one baby dies and another baby lives. But it is very clear in the Bible the ultimate cause is the participation of everyone in Adam's sin. Even a little baby born into this world, is born under the sentence of death. And it's because of this that many recoil at this teaching of original sin. It seems unfair to our reasonable mind. But let me share with you why it is not unfair. In fact, why it is eminently fair. And why it is very gracious on the part of God. Many of you know that one of my favorite pastors, Warren Wiersbe, just died himself within the last couple of months. And I want you to notice what Pastor Wiersbe says because I think it is right on the target. Listen to his words. Was it fair for God to condemn the whole world just because of one man's disobedience? The answer, of course is that it was not only fair, but it was also wise and gracious. To begin with, if God had tested each human being individually, the result would have been the same, disobedience. How many of us cannot say that is not true? If we were all tested individually, what would the result be? Exactly the same. But even more important, by condemning the human race through one man, Adam, God was then able to save the human race through one man, Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what we're going to see next week. That Adam is a type of Christ. The greater one who was to... But now here's what I believe in the case of infants. I believe the Bible teaches us that because infants are incapable of believing, they're automatically included in salvation. So we will see infants who have passed away in infancy in heaven. They died in Adam even before they could personally sin to affirm what Adam had done. But they also are saved in Christ because they are incapable of making a personal choice to trust Him. And so I believe we will see infants who have passed away in heaven And that is my answer to any family member here today, any parent who has lost a child. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you belong to His family, someday that child you never got to raise, you will see in glory. And you will rejoice what Christ has done for them to overcome the sin that they were judged guilty of in Adam. Do you know this is something that is not available to the fallen angels? Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is there no plan of salvation for the fallen angels? And I want you to follow me very carefully on this. Angels are not a race, every angel was created individually, they sinned individually and they were judged individually. Therefore, there is no representative who could take their place and save them. Fallen angels do not have a hope in a Savior like we do because they are not a race. Many years ago, it happened right here at the front of our church, a preteen came to me and asked me one of the most thought provoking questions that I've ever had a teenager or younger ask me. She said this to me Pastor, if Satan asked God to forgive him, would God forgive him? I had. The biggest temptation to say, go and ask Pastor Hank. <laughs> of course, we know Satan will never do that, so it's a hypothetical question. But if Satan did, would God forgive him? And the answer is no. Because there is no Savior who died for the sins of angels, therefore God could never be just in forgiving Satan or all of the fallen angels. Think of this this morning. Because God condemned us in Adam, He can save us in Christ. Christ. And no other creature or creation of God has that opportunity. In fact, do you know that this is so intriguing to the good angels? The Bible says they long to look into our salvation. Did you know that? You see, they don't know what it's like for fallen sinners to be able to experience the grace of God and become children of God. And so they long to look into the things that have been revealed to us. Let me read for us 1 Peter 1.12. And then I'm going to ask you, you join me on the very last phrase, alright? Let me read it. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, and now join me, things into which angels long to look. Why? Why? Because we have a Savior who died and rose in our place. And that's an amazing, amazing thing to the angels. Let's bow our heads together and close our eyes. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you are here this morning... you do not know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You are in a bad place. You are guilty of the sin of Adam because he represented you and you will die. You have a sin nature that you inherited from your parents, going all the way back to our first parents, it has corrupted you, and you will die. And then added to that, on a regular basis, you do say and think the things that you know are displeasing to God. And you add your personal sins, and you will die. And your greatest need is a Savior. Your greatest need is to somebody who will come, who is a part of your race, who can represent you, who can give an infinite sacrifice because He is not only man but also God. And therefore, He can interpose His righteousness on your behalf. And by your faith in Him, you can be declared not guilty, forgiven, and made new in Christ. And today, we're going to gather around the Lord's table and we're going to celebrate what He did for us. And if you're not sure that that includes you, you can be sure now. You can say something like this Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. In all three ways, the Bible says I am. I know that I cannot merit your acceptance, I cannot earn my way into your family. But I believe who Jesus is, I believe what he did, and I turn to him. I repent. I turn from my own way and I turn to Jesus. You can say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart and be my Savior. Come into my Lord and be my life. Forgive me. Give me life anew. Make me a child of God. And then you can say today, Lord Jesus, believing the promise of your word, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I now will follow you. I know I will not do that perfectly, but I will follow you with all of my heart. I will let you be Lord of my life because of what you have done for me. Thank you, Lord Jesus, you may say, for saving me.